Matthew chapter 26. And as you're turning there, I want to highlight as well in your announcements these wonderful little invitations. So note that also, this is for you to invite friends, family, neighbors, co-workers to our Good Friday service coming up and our celebration on Easter Sunday. These are great opportunities to invite those that we know and care about and are reaching out to come and hear the best news in the universe. So please, friends, take these with you and utilize those. You really are our best outreach program. You're the best advertisement you could ever ask for as you give these out and invite friends and loved ones. All right. We're going to, we're going to see this morning Jesus instituting what's called the Lord's Supper. Before we do, I wanted to briefly review the, the plan for adjustments to our practice of, of the Lord's Supper. So we can, are we recording Samuel? Getting this? Cool. I want to make sure we record this part. So briefly touch base, plan changes to our practice of the Lord's Supper. Every Sunday, every Sunday, we want two things shaping our time together in particular. God's Word and God's Gospel, the good news of His Son as found in His Word. We want those two things shaping our souls as we gather in this room in particular. God's Word and God's, God's Gospel. You think about it, we're shaped by all kinds of things all week long. We're shaped by our culture in all kinds of ways. We're shaped by the world and the flesh within and the, the, the devil himself, our spiritual adversary in ways. We are shaped by all kinds of messages, all kinds of things, but we gather here uniquely once a week to be very intentionally shaped as a body by the Word of God and the Gospel of God. That's, that's the big picture. That's what we're after in many ways as we worship the living God together. We'd be more and more shaped by the Word of God and the Gospel of God in, in a few ways here. First, with the addition of a wine option in addition to the juice, so retaining the juice option. And the reason is, not, not a big, big difference, but the reason is we find the wine being used in Scripture, as we'll see today. So is that a big difference? Is that absolutely necessary? No. But maybe a little more closely shaped by Scripture. And many have asked, will there be like a common cup of some type? some kind. No, you'll still get the little uh, thimble full sizes. <laughs> the little tiny individual cups will be what we use to serve that. So uh, if you love those, those are still going to be there and you, uh, you'll get to enjoy that massive amount of juice or, or wine. And then secondly, secondly, a common loaf, or maybe there will be a few, but this, this common loaf Metaphor is, is important because it appears in Scripture speaking to our unity as a body. So we're being a little, little more shaped by Scripture that way. Is that absolutely necessary? No. Small pieces of pita bread suffice. <laughs> but we like that reality of our unity metaphorically shown in Scripture, this common loaf. We'd love to have that shaping us even more every Sunday that we're reminded of our unity as a body. 
signified by that one loaf. Now, others have asked and raised a very good question about, about germs. If many people are, are handling this common loaf, it gets a little too common. <laughs> and it's a great point. We hear you. And so the, the person serving that bread with clean hands will be the one breaking off the pieces from the common loaf to sort of mitigate the understandable concern on that front. Thirdly, third modification would be coming forward to receive the elements. This is not entirely new for us. In fact, when we first started the church, we were doing, doing it this way, but in our facility there, it was just kind of a train wreck logistically. But every Good Friday, we've done this, and the response from so many has been so, so positive. They've, you've just appreciated coming forward to receive the elements, and I think there's a particular gospel-shaped reason why. Because the gospel, this good news, does involve a response on our part. Now, it's all by grace. Salvation is all by God's wonderful grace. But we do respond, don't we? Volitionally, willingly, to this good news. To, to receive with, with the open-handed reception of faith. And our hope is... That's just pictured a little bit more for us, bodily, physically, as we come forward to receive. And so are shaped a little bit more, perhaps, by the good news of Jesus Christ. Is it absolutely necessary? No. No, it's not. Sitting there in your seat and receiving is, is also fine. But we hope we're shaped a little bit more by the Word of God and the Gospel of God. We've had a, a number of really good questions, and Joshua put together a, a sheet of the most frequently asked questions and some brief answers. That's in the back at the information table also, and he will be teaching a little interactive seminar, I guess you could call it, back at the conference room next Sunday after the service. So brief uh, time there to interact with you further and, and do some more teaching on this topic. But that's what we've proposed but more important than how we celebrate this, more important than how, is why. And that's what we find here, detailed for us in Matthew 26. Let's, let's survey this scene in three sections, three parts. Matthew 26. First, let's see the purposeful setting. First, let's see the purposeful setting. Now, recall, religious authorities are scheming for a way to arrest Jesus by stealth and, and kill him. Judas, one of the twelve, has already gone and taken money and agreed to betray Jesus. And now we read verse 17. Now, verse 17, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? That's the setting, the festival called the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's supposed to be eaten in Jerusalem, where there was real danger for Jesus. It seems Jesus then has, has made prior arrangements for he and his disciples to eat in someone's upper room. And so he says in verse 18, Go into the city, city of Jerusalem, to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, my time is at hand. Well, that, that's a loaded phrase. My time, he says, is at hand. 
I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. That is the intentional setting for what's about to take place. Now, I just want to think about that setting. I want to unpack that intentional, purposeful setting briefly. briefly. This, this festival, this commemoration goes back 14 centuries from this point when Pharaoh of Egypt had refused to let the Israelites leave Egypt because they were their slave labor. And so God, God initiated a series of plagues. Water was turned to blood. Frogs, flies, gnats were sent. Still, Pharaoh hardened his heart and refused to let the Israelites go. Livestock were killed. Boils sent on the people. Hail, locusts, a divinely sent darkness. And still, Pharaoh refused to let them go. Finally, one last plague was announced. All the firstborn would die. Now think about this. Who was under the threat of death under that plague? Egyptian firstborn and, and Israelite firstborn. In fact, all of us are under the sentence of death left to ourselves. And so Israelite firstborn and Egyptian firstborn under that threatened plague. Imagine what this was like for you if you were an Israelite firstborn. God told the Israelites, take a lamb without blemish, a perfect lamb, slaughter it, and put its blood on the doorpost and lintel of the doorway. And God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you when I strike the land of Egypt. So imagine you're a firstborn Israelite, and this is just not some run-of-the-mill ceremony. This is not some festive occasion. This was life or death for you. There is blood dripping down the sides of the doorway and you waited. All you have for this coming plague, all you have is the blood of this sacrifice as a substitute for you. And you are wondering all night long, is that blood sufficient for me? All night long, you wait and you wonder, is that sacrifice going to be sufficient for my life to spare me and have the judgment of God pass over me? You wait and you wait and you wait. And then at midnight, there are piercing cries and wails from, from every Egyptian household as they discover they're dead. But you remain untouched. And what do you say? You say, saved by the blood of the Lamb. Saved by that sacrifice. Saved by that substitute for me. And that's what a Christian says. That's what a Christian does. A Christian is not someone who just comes to a community center on Sunday morning and sings songs. A Christian is not someone who performs certain religious duties of some kind. A Christian, friend, a Christian is someone who takes refuge in and takes shelter in the blood of another sacrifice, the substitute, Jesus Christ. 
as your Passover lamb. That's why I say this is the purposeful setting. We are to see what happens here in light of that context, leading us, secondly, to see the predetermined plan. Secondly, to see the predetermined, predetermined plan. So they're now they're, they're eating in this upper room. And Jesus makes a pronouncement the disciples are entirely unprepared for. Verse 20. Verse 20. While it was evening, or when it was evening, he, Jesus, reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful. And that, that really is an understatement. This word, this word translated sorrowful describes violent emotion. The disciples are shocked. The disciples are stunned. They are not expecting this. And they begin to ask, they begin to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? Is it I? Am I going to do that? Are you referring to me? In verse 23, Jesus answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. That doesn't seem to really identify Judas clearly to the rest of the disciples, but what Jesus says next hopefully sent shivers down Judas's spine. Verse 24, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Notice that. As it is written of him. But woe. Here's the pronouncement of a curse. Woe. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Notice. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, you have said so. Judas' sin of betrayal, betraying God come in the flesh, was so heinous and thus his judgment so severe. Jesus says it would have been better for him if he had never ever existed. And I have to say, that applies to myself as well, apart from Christ. And friend, it, it applies to you too, apart from Christ. That my sins against infinite holiness and infinite justice require an eternal penalty in a real place called hell. And so apart from Christ, you could certainly say of me, it would have been better for you if you'd not been born. So great is His grace. So great. So Judas is clearly responsible for his betrayal. But notice, Judas and the religious leaders are not the, not the primary cause here. Not the primary actors 
of what is about to take place. They play their part to be sure, but Jesus says that He, the Son of Man, is going, remember, as it is written of Him, verse 24. He's going as God had sovereignly determined ahead of time. He's going as had been recorded in the Holy Scriptures. So, so marvel at the mystery with me for a moment. Responsible moral agents, heinous sin, and yet God, the divine conductor of all human history, ensuring the outcome of what's about to take place. I mean, make no mistake here, Jesus is in charge at this moment. He knows what's about to happen. He's letting all of this run its course because this is why He's come. It's all the predetermined plan of God to bring that grace, that mercy, that love to all who will believe. Which leads us thirdly, the last section, what I'll call the sacramental promise. Let's call this the sacramental promise. Because Jesus now, He gives His people a new sacrament, a new ordinance an activity they were to do to, to identify with Him. It's what we call the Lord's Supper, or sometimes called communion, or sometimes called the Eucharist, which just means thanksgiving. Now let me just say here that Jesus' first concern in this section is really not to teach a theology of the sacraments per se. The main thing He's doing is explaining the meaning and significance of His death to His disciples. It's the main thing He's getting across, the significance of His coming sacrifice. The main thing He's saying is, I am the Passover lamb for you. But in His institution of this sacrament, I want to draw with you three promises we can derive. I want to see with you three promises, three, we'll call them sacramental promises that we can derive, that I hope shape every time we take the Lord's Supper together. So first see here, there's a promise of fellowship. A promise of fellowship. I would say this is implicit, not explicit, but track with me. Verse 26, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Now imagine you're one of the disciples. You have grown up in a Jewish home. You have celebrated this festival all of your life. Every year you've watched that bread go around the table. But now Jesus utters words you've never heard uttered at a Passover. In fact, Jesus utters words that have never in the history of the Passover been uttered before. Take, eat, this is my, my body. He's taking this festival that after 14 centuries have been celebrated this one way, and now he's saying, all of it points to me. And it's been said that these are the most disputed words in all of church history. Glorious words, most disputed in all of church history. Now, again, let me accent what is, I think, the intention. 
what's not disputed is Jesus is saying, I am giving myself as the Passover lamb. He is giving himself as a substitute for all who will believe. He is saying, I am that final, ultimate sacrifice for your sins to bring you to God. Because a great and final judgment day is coming. When, if you will, the plague of God's wrath falls on all sin. Because we have sinned against infinite holiness and infinite justice and infinite righteousness. So for God to overlook somehow sin would be to deny His holiness, deny His justice, and deny His righteousness. For God to overlook sin, He would cease to be God. So a judgment is coming and there is no escaping from this final plague unless, unless, friend, you have a perfect sacrifice to look to. Unless you have a perfect substitute to take your place that the wrath of God might pass over you. I likened it last week to a tornado shelter like I saw in O'Hare Airport where you go into the shelter so that the wrath of the tornado would pass over you. I realize we cannot relate to tornadoes quite as well here in Southern California. So think about a wildfire. Think about a wildfire. I am told that firefighters, when they are fighting a wildfire, they will have a portable little tent, foil tent structure, so that worst case scenario, if the fire begins to come back at them, if the fire reverses and is coming toward them, worst case scenario, they can get under that foil shelter that the fire might pass over them. Obviously, it doesn't always work. But this shelter does. Jesus is saying, I am that shelter for you that the wrath of God might pass over your life. And if you're here and you've not yet to trust Jesus Christ like that. I just want to urge you to do so. I just want to appeal to you that you would turn to Christ and trust in His sacrifice. I want to appeal to you that even as you hear my voice, you would trust in Him as a shelter for you that the wrath of God might pass over you. So, Jesus' main point. I am the Passover lamb. That part's not disputed. The disputed part is... What does Jesus mean by eating his body? And certainly drinking his blood as well, as we'll see. What does he mean by that? Well, eating is a great metaphor of personally participating in. You're, you're uh, digesting in your soul what Jesus has done for you, you might say. But how, how is Christ present such that we eat his body? Well, there are four at least that I'm aware of, four ways people have thought of the real presence of Christ. Four ways they've answered this question. First, one way, the bread and cup are transformed into Jesus' literal body and blood. That is the traditional Roman Catholic view. And if you're here with a Roman Catholic background, I'm not seeking to put you down at all. But I don't think this would have entered the disciples' mind. Jesus' literal body was right before them. They understood the metaphor Jesus was using. 
And even now, even now, Jesus' glorified body is located in heaven. And so this is not an option for Protestant believers. But there are three others that Protestants have, hold, have held. Another view would be the bread and cup are just symbols. They are only remembrances of what Christ has done. This was popularized especially by Ulrich Zwingli. And there is truth to that. There's a lot of truth to that. There is a remembrance that is supposed to take place. That is clearly there. But is there more to it than that as well, in addition to that? Well, third, a guy you've probably heard of named Martin Luther. He had a different view. He said Christ's presence was in, with, and around the bread, around the elements. And so that's how this happens. Christ's presence in, with, and around the elements, the traditional Lutheran view. And then fourthly, a view put forward especially by John Calvin, who said, yes, there's a remembrance. Yes, there's a looking back, but there's also a fellowship, a communion with the risen Christ by His Spirit. Now, I think any of those three views are within the realm of orthodoxy, but I, I, I do think that last view is the best one because I think, and I could be wrong, but I think it's the view of the Apostle Paul who said in 1 Corinthians 10, the cup of blessing we bless, that's the Lord's Supper, the cup of blessing that we blessed, bless, is it not a participation in, a communion in, a fellowship in the blood of Christ? And the bread we break, it's the Lord's Supper, the bread we break, is it not a participation in, communion in, fellowship in the body of Christ? Paul's point seems to be, when we take the Lord's Supper together, we are in the Lord's presence in some particular way. So we have fellowship with each other, and it seems he's also saying a communion with, a fellowship with our Lord. Now, that is mysterious and mystical, I grant you, but remember, Christianity is a relationship with God through a living Savior through a living Savior, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I like, I like how some Christian traditions use the language feeding on Christ by faith as they take the Lord's Supper. Feeding on Christ by faith. I think that's a nice way to think about it. Feeding on Christ, having your soul strengthened as you enjoy fellowship with the risen Savior by His Spirit. That's one promise. Here's a second promise. There is most clearly a promise of forgiveness. Most clearly a promise of forgiveness. Verse 27. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, notice, for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus takes the cup of thanksgiving, the third of four cups of wine in the Passover feast, blesses it, passes it around, and then utters more words never ever before, heard before in a Passover. This is my blood of the covenant. 
And when you see blood there, don't, don't think he's referring to his you know, blood platelets that forgive you, red blood cells that forgive you. He's referring to his violent, sacrificial death. That's Jesus' point. His violent, sa- uh, sacrificial death puts into place, ratifies, he says, a, a covenant, a solemn, committed relationship with God. That, that's the idea of a covenant. And that idea is really important here. And I'm sure Joshua will take time on this in his seminar, and he'll do a better job than I ever will. But the idea of covenant, just think back for a moment. It goes all the way back to Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, and God promised, God promised a deliverer. And then this idea of covenant gets explicit with a guy named Noah. After the flood, God makes a promise to preserve human life. And then this idea of covenant, it ramps up with a guy named Abram, later Abraham, God promising him a family, a land, and through his family, blessing to all families of the earth. Don't try this at home. And then that family of Abraham is formed into a nation under a covenant through a guy named Moses. And then to that nation, God promises a forever king. And a covenant with a guy named David. But things don't go so well with this nation and this line of kings. It gets pretty messed up. So prophets start alluding to another administration of God's covenant, another form of God's covenant. Another way this, this solemn promise to save is going to take, take shape most explicitly in Jeremiah 31, where Jeremiah uses the term new covenant. You hear it every Sunday when we take the Lord's Supper together. There's a new covenant, Jeremiah says. A new, a new expression of this covenant where God says he will put his law on his people's hearts. He'll transform them from within. A new, a new administration of this covenant when all his people will know him personally and intimately. They won't need prophets and priests to tell them about God. They will know God personally. And a new form of this covenant when God forgives our sins. Did you catch that? He says he will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. So what does Jesus say here? This is my blood of the covenant. Notice, poured out for many for what? For the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus is saying, with my violent sacrificial death, I am ratifying that arrangement for you. But a little more theology here. When God wants to impress on his people these promises, and when he wants to impress on their hearts his love and his faithfulness to keep those promises, he would sometimes give them a covenant sign, like to Noah, when he said, look at that rainbow, that's a sign, I'm not going to wipe out humanity again like I just did. Or the act of circumcision which he gives to Abraham to strengthen Abraham's faith when he's faltering in his faith. To say, Abraham, I'm going to be faithful to my promises. 
That's what Jesus is, in effect, doing here. Taking this bread and this cup to give us these tangible signs that we can hold in our hands and see with our eyes and and taste with our taste buds to help us believe His promises and be assured in our hearts that God will keep His promise to forgive our sins. That's what is happening here, friends. It's as if Jesus is saying to you and me, I know you haven't seen me face to face yet. I know you're living by faith in me every day. And I know sometimes that's hard. So I want to give you tangible things you can hang on to and have your hearts, your souls strengthened in faith that I will forgive you and remember your iniquity no more. And I need that. How about you? I need that, friends. I have, I have something diagnosed by Paul Tripp called Gospel Amnesia. And you might have it too. Gospel Amnesia, the the condition where we forget this good news. And we begin to think, I need to earn God's favor. Or maybe I have forfeited God's favor. We begin to think, Maybe I have lost his love. Begin to think, at least how I think, if I had a longer quiet time today, then I could be really secure in God's love. If I had prayed more earnestly, then God would show more favor. Or you have a bad week. You sin in anger with the kids. You waste time at work. Or maybe, maybe someone here, you looked at pornography online and you know that's wrong. You know you need to repent. You're saying, yes, I'm seeking to turn away, but I just feel like this guilt remains on my soul and I cannot draw near to God. That's gospel amnesia. You're forgetting what Christ has done. Or, or maybe gospel amnesia for you is something you have done that you simply cannot forget. Something from your past that plagues you right now. I read this recently. This is by Rebecca Manley Pippert, an author. She tells of talking with a woman who had had an abortion in her past. Manly Pippard writes, this lady was sobbing so deeply she could not speak. As I put my arms around her, a thought came to me very strongly, but I was afraid to say it. The lady continued, I just can't believe I would do something so horrible. How could I have murdered an innocent life? I've confessed this sin a thousand times. I still feel such shame and sorrow. Did you catch that? I'm trusting Jesus. I've confessed it a thousand times. I still feel such shame and sorrow. The thought that haunts me the most is how I could murder an innocent life. Manly Pippert writes, I took a deep breath and said what I'd been thinking. 
I don't know why you're so surprised. This isn't the first time your sin has led to death. It's the second. She looked at me in utter amazement. My dear friend, I continued, when you look at the cross, all of us show up as crucifiers, religious or irreligious, good or bad, aborters or non-aborters. All of us are responsible for the death of the only innocent who ever lived. Jesus died for all your sins, past, present, and future. Do you think there are any sins of yours that Jesus didn't have to die for? It doesn't matter that you weren't there 2,000 years ago. We all sent him there. She stopped crying. She looked at me straight in the eye and said, You're absolutely right. I have done something even worse than killing my baby. My sin is what drove Jesus to the cross. I came to you saying I had done the worst thing imaginable. And maybe you're thinking that yourself. And you tell me I have done something even worse than that. I grimaced because I knew this was true. Then she said, but Becky... If the cross shows me that I am far worse than I had ever imagined, if the cross shows me that I am far worse than I'd ever imagined, it also shows me that my evil has been absorbed and forgiven. If the worst thing any human can do is kill God's Son, and that can be forgiven, then how can anything else not be forgiven? She concludes, I will never forget the look in her eyes as she sat back in awe and quietly said, talk about amazing grace. This time she wept, not out of sorrow, but relief and gratitude. I saw a woman literally transformed by a proper understanding of the cross. Now, it is my contention that as we take these covenant signs every week, that's God's intention for you and me. That we are transformed by a proper understanding of the cross. That we weep even out of relief and gratitude and sit back in wonder and say, talk about amazing grace. That's why Jesus gives us these signs, these tangible reminders to make sure the gospel, this good news, doesn't get abstract or impersonal. But every week you say, Christ died for me and I am assured of his forgiveness. Promise of fellowship, promise of forgiveness, one more briefly, the promise of future transformation. There is thirdly a promise of future transformation. Verse 29, Jesus concludes, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day. That day, when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now Jesus makes, in essence, a vow. 
a promise. I won't drink this fruit of the vine, of this feast, until another feast. What John calls the marriage supper of the Lamb, when the kingdom of God has come in fullness and there is no more sin or sickness or suffering, no more mourning or crying or pain or death, and Jesus wipes every tear from your eyes. Won't that future transformation be glorious? The Lord's Supper means to point you there as well, to that day. There's no more sin. Maybe you're here and you're aware of how you've been sinned against. And the pain of that hurts you. And I'm not seeking to minimize that. Or you're aware of how you've sinned yourself against others, as, as we all have. Most of all, being aware of how you've sinned against God. Now realize the Lord's Supper points you to a day when there will be no more sin. No more sin, no more sickness, no flu viruses, no cancer, no illnesses ravaging your body or that of loved ones. The Lord's Supper points you forward to that day of future transformation, a day of no sin, no sickness, and no suffering at all, no grief, no war, no mass shootings, no famine, no evil thing to befall you ever again. There's a hymn. A hymn we'd sing at Christmas, but I think we should sing it maybe at Easter too. It's Joy to the World by Isaac Watts. No more let sins and sorrows grow. No more let sins and sorrows grow. Nor thorns infest the ground because of the curse of sin. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. As you take simple bread and a little cup, you are pointed forward to that day when his blessings are found in perfection forever. This, friends, is our hope as we take the Lord's Supper. And so, no surprise, I'm sure, we're going to close by celebrating the Lord's Supper together. Would the music team please come? Those who are going to serve us, please come and do so. Prepare to do so. If, you, if you're tracking with me, this is um, it's a time to do three things. To look upwards in fellowship with the risen Christ by His Spirit. There is something mysterious and mystical, but Christ is in our midst by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. It's a time to look backwards as well to what Christ has done, His finished work on your behalf, so you could be assured that He will keep His promise and remember none of your sins. And it's a time to look ahead and anticipate, oh friend, the future transformation when all will be made new. So we want to do that together. First, for those who have yet to believe, however, if you've yet to trust in Christ, this supper is for those who've already believed. Please just pass the trays down the aisles. But I would pray, I would urge you to not pass on the Passover lamb. 
who lived, died, and rose in your place, that God's judgment that you deserve and I deserve would pass over you and you would know his love. I urge you to believe on Christ even now. For those who are taking the Lord's Supper, please take the bread, take the cup, hang on to both. But do what I just mentioned. Look up. Look up to your risen Savior. Enjoy the presence, communion, fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Look back to his finished work and rest assured he paid it all. And look ahead at the great day that's to come. Let the ushers please come.